Um, once again, it's really great to have you here with us this morning. My name's Rich and part of the team here at the church. And again, particularly if this is your first Sunday, just a huge welcome to you. We love that you are here with us. Um, just to say last week, we wrapped up um, a series that we'd been in for quite a few weeks called Fear Not, Knowing Peace in an Age of Anxiety. And uh, those talks are all up on the website. Um, Matt Luard did a great job last week uh, kind of rounding out that series with an excellent sermon on something the Bible refers to as the fear of God. It can, it can be kind of a confusing uh, topic, but he did a very, very good job taking us through that last Sunday. Um, do feel free to get on the gracecity.ca website um, if you uh, would like to catch up on that series, or perhaps maybe even hear it for the first time if you've not been with us um, through that series. Now, this morning, uh, we are starting a new uh, mini-series. We're, we're just going to be doing this for two weeks right now, and we're calling it This Kind of Church, and we're basing it on the final verses of Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. And we're going to be in this this week and next Sunday as well, but from time to time, I suspect over the next few months, we're going to dip back into this, because at the end of Acts chapter 2, we see this wonderful description of what life was like in the early church. Now, it could be that you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, why, why does... Why does that really matter? Like when I'm reading this, if, if, if you're familiar with the book of Acts uh, in the Bible, maybe, maybe you're not familiar with the book of Acts in the Bible and you just think, well, even if it's there, it, it's recording something that supposedly happened like roughly 2,000 years ago. How is that relevant for life today? There's a lot of things that could be said about that, but what I want to say to you right now is this, is that everybody in this room, everybody in this room has an opinion on what church should be like. Even if you're here and you're not a Christian, even if you're here and you're not a person of faith, of any faith, still you would have an opinion on what church should be like. We don't have to look very far in our culture to have uh, various people speaking about what church should be like. So how do we know what the church actually <laughs> should be like? You know, we could all have an opinion on it, and in a few things, maybe we'd even be agreed, but probably not on everything. How then do we know? How then do we know what church should be? be like? Well, here in this church and in many churches across the city, across our nation and beyond, Christians around the world, many believe that this book, the Bible, is the basis on which we would say this is what the church should be like. We, we, we filter it through this. Does, does, it, does it pass that test? Or do our desires of what church should be like, does it not fit with this? If it doesn't fit with it, well, depending what it is, if it's theology, if it's, if it's doctrine, then we need to go, no, we're, we're going we're to protect against that. We're going to guard against that. If it's things like style or little preferences that way, that's a different matter. This book doesn't go into detail on things like that. It gives a lot of freedom in that area. But either way, what I'm wanting you to know this morning is that in this series, and, and if you've been part of Grace City for any length of time, you know, I trust, I hope, that it's this book that we want to dictate what uh, church life and church family life looks like for us here. I can't, I can't speak on behalf of every church in town or, or anywhere else, but I can speak about this one. And that's the type of church that we're wanting uh, to build, one that is consistent with what God's Word says about the church. Now, with that said, I want to Turn us to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. If you have a Bible, feel free to turn there. If not, the, uh, the words for this, the verses are going to come up on the screens here beside me. And here we read just this, this remarkable uh, description of what life was like in the early church. I mean, we're, we're talking not long at all after the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Okay? There was this incredible, incredible thing that had happened. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, coming, being born to a virgin. We celebrate that at Christmas. Coming into the world, living the life that you could have never lived, that I could have never lived, being faithful to God in every way, healing the sick, teaching, just people hanging on to every word, all of it, but still, where does he end up? On a cross, in your place and in mine, paying the penalty for our sin, paying the penalty for the ways that we declare ourselves as God. But as we celebrate every Easter, Jesus doesn't stay dead. He comes back to life, and he appears to people. It's documented. This is incredible. There's no one like this man. And this incredible transformation happens in the lives of these early Christians. The Holy Spirit falls on them. They're filled with the Spirit. There's these amazing things that are happening. And it's in all of that that we read the description of what life was then like in the church. And it says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I mean, that's wonderful, isn't it? What an amazing description of church life. And I'm so glad to be able to say that by the grace of God, if you've been in this church, hopefully some things that that we've just been reading about here hopefully sound familiar. Some of the things that are happening there. Every week in this church we have teaching from the Bible Every week we join together to worship, to sing together. That's the way that we uh, kind of collectively, a, a bunch of individuals, but together as one, as one family, as one body, if you will, respond to the truth of God's word, respond to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. These verses mention the breaking of bread. We do that pretty much every Sunday in this church. We're going to do it this morning. You'll make your way, if you have a relationship with Jesus, to the tables to the left and right of the room. You've all heard me say it. And we take the bread, which represents Jesus' body broken for us, and the wine, which represents his blood poured out for us on the cross. What about signs and wonders? Do we see that in the life of the church as well? Here, I'm thrilled to say, yes, we do. We have seen miracles in this church. Just a few weeks ago, there was a woman in our life group uh, that Natalia and I have the pleasure of serving, and she was telling us that uh, for a while, she had been waking up every morning at 3 a.m., 3 a.m., not only waking up in the middle of the night, but waking up in the middle of the night with a huge amount of fear about something happening to a family member. I mean, it was tough. And, and, and we kind of went around the table that night, everybody kind of sharing different things going on in life and things that they wanted to be prayed for. But as a group, we just kind of felt this thing of like, we need to focus on this. We need to focus on this situation. And, and those that were comfortable praying, we're going to pray for her. We're going to pray that God just steps in here and that she rests well and that this fear would just go. So we prayed. We said, is it cool if we do that? The other things that people have mentioned, let's remember it through the week as we go about our lives in the city. But tonight, can we pray about this? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. So we prayed. We prayed. And the week went on, 
And I'm there, and I'm kind of, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I'm, I'm there, and I'm thinking, oh, I, I, I wonder if I should send a note in our little WhatsApp group for our life group, kind of saying what's happened. But there was this little thing in me that was like, oh, but what, what if God didn't answer that prayer? What if it didn't happen? Then, then, then she might write back and go, hey, thanks for praying, but nothing's changed. And then it's like, oh, man, then disappointment, and like, you know, God, what are you doing in this? So, so I didn't. I took the cowardly way out. Hand up. There you go. That's the type of guy you're led by. Sorry. All right? So <laughs> there you are. But the next Wednesday rolled around. She came back, and it came to the point of the evening after dinner where I said, hey, is there, are there any updates? She said, yeah, there's an update. Since we prayed that night, I have slept the entire way through the night. Wow. Wow. The entire way through the night. Another week goes by. This brings it to last Wednesday night, just a few days ago. Hey, any updates? Yeah, I'm still sleeping the entire way through the night. Praise God. And some of you might hear that and think, well, that, that seems different than the type of miracles that are written about in this book. It doesn't seem quite as significant. I bet if you spoke to that woman, she would tell you something differently about the significance of that miracle in her life. And there are other stories that I could tell as well. My point is this, is by God's grace, God is doing this in the life of our church as well. Now, this is Acts chapter 2. There are a lot of chapters in Acts, and the Bible continues on from Acts as well. You don't have to read too far to see where Christians get it wrong. And I mean really wrong. There's one church where people are suing each other. Uh, the same one, there's, there's somebody who's sleeping with their mother-in-law, and they go to the same church. Like, that's just messed up. And Paul's having to write and having to correct these things. Christians get it wrong sometimes. So you need to know that when we're looking at these verses, or even when I'm standing up here going, church, praise God that some of these same things that we read about in Acts chapter 2 about life in the early church and these wonderful descriptions, praise God that some of that stuff is happening here as well. What I'm not saying is it happens because we always get it right. Because in here, when we read about these churches, they do not always get it right, but God is always faithful. And God is always gracious. And some of us, some of you that are here this morning, you've, you've, you've entered into that mindset of, well, God will only bless me if I get it right. No, <laughs> not at all. Okay? God blesses those that he chooses to bless, and he does it by grace. There's nothing that you bring to the table, nothing impressive, nothing good enough for God. But if you come to God through Jesus Christ, through his perfect son, then you have a right to be there and to ask things of your heavenly Father. Praise God. That's our way in. It's not in anything we do in ourselves, either individually or as a church family together. Any grace that we know in the life of this church, any grace that you know in your own life, if you're a follower of Jesus, is because of Jesus, is because you are in him. And if you don't know Jesus this morning and still God is showing you grace in different areas, it's to point you to Christ. It's not intended to be thought of separately from him. It's to, it's to be a taste, kind of a foreshadowing of what is to come if you surrender your life to Jesus yourself. It is all by his grace. Now, as we go through uh, this, this series, or at least this next couple of weeks, there's one part, and it's verse 45, that I want to really kind of hone us in on. And this is what it says in verse 45. It says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What I want to speak to you about this morning is serving the poor. Serving the poor. And you may think, well, in these verses, it doesn't specifically mention the poor. I do acknowledge that, but we certainly need to recognize and understand that it would include that. Those in need that are being referred to there would have included those in need within the church 
and outside of the church. Because what is only said just a short time after that verse is that they had favor with all the people. What's one of the reasons that they had favor with all the people? Is that all the people recognized that the church was good for all of them in the service, including in the service of the poor. So we're going to focus in on this this morning. This said a couple times is going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I, I, I hope this morning as a church we feel stretched. I, if you're with us this morning for the very first time, don't, don't freak out, okay? I hope this doesn't spook you off or anything like that. As Canadians, we, we want to be people of service, you know, that's kind of part of our national identity. So I know when I, I lived in the U.K., I would always say, oh, you're Canadian. You're, you must be so kind. Well, yes, I am. Thank you very much. I am actually quite kind, more than the people to the south, I will tell you that. And people would look at me and go, no, that's not always the case, and I know that that is true. Emily, don't hate me right now, okay? Emily's my American friend over here who's going to speak to me very, very sternly after the service, and I will deserve that. But we as Canadians, we can sometimes think of ourselves as, you know, the kind ones, right? Right? The ones that are filled with compassion. Okay, so whether you're here this morning as, as a follower of Jesus or not, I suspect that when it comes to wanting to show kindness and compassion to others, there's, there's something, I suspect, already in you for that, no matter what your take on, on faith may be. But what I want to do this morning is I want, I want to show you from, from the Bible what should be the basis, the foundation of our compassion particularly the foundation of our compassion towards the poor. Now, let's jump into this together. One thing that I say uh, most weeks from the front here is that our mission as a church is to help people follow Jesus, to raise leaders, and to start churches. As I look around right now, I see some of you mouthing along to that, and that's a good thing. We, we, we know that in the life of our church. Grace City Church exists to help people follow Jesus, to raise leaders, and to start churches. But we're left with a question in that. The question is, 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 to what end? To what purpose? To help people follow Jesus? What is, what is a key way? That, what should that look like? To raise leaders, wonderful. But leaders who do, who do what? To start churches. Hey, that, that sounds great. A lot of churches are shutting down, even in our city, around the nation. We should start churches. The church should move forward. But to do What? For what purpose? And what I want to do this morning is I want to position serving the poor at the very middle of that. One of the ways in which we help people follow Jesus is we help people understand biblical reasons for having a heart for the poor. We raise leaders who lead in what? Who lead in kindness and in generosity and compassion towards the poor. And those that they are leading then follow them in, in, in their example And churches that we then start, what is one of the core things that churches that we start? And we're we're two and a half, three years in in our journey ourselves as Grace City Church, but we do believe, we absolutely believe that God has called us to start other churches in our nation. And when we do that, not if, when we do that, what is one of the things that we are going to require those churches to do? It is going to be to serve the poor. But why is that? Why, why, why is it even in, in Acts chapter 2, in the earliest days of the church, that this, this, was, this was there? I mean, it was already part of who they were. Why should it be part of who we are today? I want to take you quickly through three reasons why I believe that this is the case. The first is this. When it comes to the early church, the early church 
uh, was largely, in the earliest days, largely overwhelmingly made up of Jews who had come to realize that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah that they had read about and been told about and had been taught about in the older scriptures. Scriptures prophesying, telling in the future of a Messiah that is to come. The early church was made up of Jews who went, this man, this Jesus is, is him. He's the Messiah. So they, in, in already being familiar with the older scriptures, what we would refer to now as the Old Testament of what is now our Bible, they were already familiar with the idea of a God who had a great love and a tremendous heart for the poor. This idea did not start coming into uh, kind of a faith at the, the time when Jesus walked the earth. It had already been there. So I want to quickly take you through a few scriptures that would, that would point to this. The first is Exodus chapter 23, verse 6. And this is what it has to say. This is part of God's law. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. What's that saying? You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. He's saying don't have a different rule of law for those who are poor. Justice is justice. It needs to be uh, administered equally, not based on socioeconomic groupings, not based on finance, not based on whether clothing is torn and tattered or whether somebody looks sharp, sharply dressed. Justice is justice. Now, we all hear that and think, well, yeah, but where did that come from? It came from God. Friends, that's not our idea. That's not an original thought. It comes from God himself. That's an exodus. That's, that's early. I mean, that's really early. God talking about his law. Now, if we move forward quite a bit, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 10. This is uh, something that is spoken through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. This is what it says. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. What does that mean? Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. Woe to the lawmakers who make unjust laws. Why? Why? Because they turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they make the fatherless their prey. In that culture, the widows and the orphans, the fatherless, were the most, uh, among the most outcast of society. It's a little bit different in our age today, not in every case, but in many. But in that culture, it was the widows. And it was the orphans who certainly would have been thought of anytime somebody was talking about the poor. And God is saying, woe to any lawmaker who enacts unjust laws at the cost of the serving of the poor. Woe to them. Rounding out the Old Testament. Malachi. This is Malachi chapter 3. Verse 5, it says this. This is God again then speaking. Then I will draw near to you for judgment I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. Oh, yeah, we hear that and we think, yeah, people that are into witchcraft, that's not good. God should be angry at them. Against the adulterers, oh, yeah, yeah, tisk tisk. We don't like adulterers very much. Against those who swear falsely, mm, start to get a little nervous here because we know we've broken our words sometimes. Against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. The widow and the fatherless, there it is again, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You know, in our comfortable Christianity, the, the first few things that are identified in those verses, oh yeah, we agree with that. But you know, God's heart, his righteous anger is just as much 
towards those that oppress the poor. As it is against the things that we would kind of classify as, you know, the worst of sins that we would be really, really quick to list off. The early church would have known that the God of the Old Testament, the God of Scripture, was a God who was deeply concerned about the poor. Secondly, the early church was led by men who had spent three years with Jesus. Three years with Jesus. And they came to see serving the poor simply as a regular feature of life with Jesus. It was like oxygen. Like it was just, it was just part of daily life with Jesus was serving the poor. This is, what Luke, or this is what Jesus says himself in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And in this, Jesus is quoting, actually, Isaiah, something that is said in Isaiah, which I was reading just a couple minutes ago. But Jesus, he goes into a synagogue in, in, in Nazareth, I think it is, and he opens a scroll. He takes a scroll out. Back then, you know, scriptures wouldn't look like this. There would have been scrolls for different books of the Bible. He takes it. He opens it. And Isaiah is pretty big, pretty big scroll. And everybody's there, and they're listening. What is it that he's going to read? What's he going to bring? And this is what Jesus says. He says, reading from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Luke goes into this detail, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. There would have been an attendant who was responsible for taking the scrolls, making sure that they were in order, that they were well taken care of. Then Jesus went and he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, this is about me. When Isaiah spoke this, this is about me. I am the one who has come to proclaim good news to the poor. Now that's different than us. Jesus is not saying like we so often do. This verse really speaks to me. I'm going to put this up on my fridge or put it on the bumper sticker of my Camry and it's going to be really nice. This really speaks to me. Jesus is not saying that. He's saying this literally was written about me. Today, in your midst, this is being fulfilled. I am the one who has come to proclaim good news to the poor. The early disciples of Jesus, they, they, they would have just known this. This was, just, this was part of Jesus' mission. This sat at the very core of it. This is just what life with him was like. Read through the miracles. Read through the incredible things that Jesus did. Read through his engagements with the poor. And that's just what we have documented here. This was just part of everyday life. And in case any of us might be thinking, well, it it, it must be the poor who were part of the church. It must be part of the poor who were followers of his. No, no, no. The poor. There's no asterisks. The poor who were followers of Jesus. The poor who believed who he said. No, there's no asterisks. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. And in doing so, he came to bring life to the poor. He healed the poor. The early church was led by men who spent time with Jesus and saw this very much as a part of what life with Jesus 
was like. Some of you are working in international development, foreign aid. What a tremendous gift of grace to you that you get to do this and you get paid for it by my taxes. Thank you very much. That's fine. But you get to do, you get to do this as, as, a, as a career. What a remarkable gift of grace. I want to commend you if you work in a role like that. I'm not trying to say anyone who doesn't has something that's less uh, notable. It's not my heart at all. But if this is what you do, if this is an opportunity that God has given you, whether or not you recognize this is an opportunity from God or not, it is. If you work in that field, if you're studying in that field, you are part of God's plan to enact this, to do this. There's a degree to which we all are, but to be able to do that as a vocation, to be able to do that uh, 9 to 5, or uh, and nobody actually works 9 to 5, 7 till 7, or whatever it is, what a privilege, though, to be able to give that much time to that. This is so, so dear to the heart of God. Thirdly, the early church understood that no matter what their income or no matter what their material wealth may have been, spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, they were the poor who Christ had made rich. Now, this is central. This needs to sit at the very, very center of our understanding of God's heart for the poor. And if you're here as a follower of Jesus this morning, what our hearts should be as well. At the very core of the gospel, at the very core of the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us is a recognition that before we met Jesus, we were in poverty. Spiritually speaking, we had nothing. There's nothing that we brought to the table. There's nothing that we could offer God of ourselves, of our own riches, of anything else that would make God look at us and say, yes, you're, you're worthy. Come and be part of my family. Earlier, I was speaking about widows and orphans. Before we met Jesus, we were the widow. We were the orphans. But here's the difference. Unlike widows in our culture today and orphans in our culture today, we chose to be a widow. We chose to be an orphan. God created us to have loving relationship with him. Yet apart from Christ, and for those of us in the room who surrendered our lives to Christ, before doing that, we chose our poverty. We chose to go it alone. We chose to reject Jesus as our perfect husband. We chose to be orphans. God, the father to the fatherless, he is created as, as, as sorry, he's not created. He has always existed as father, always. And he created us to be in his family as sons and daughters that he loves. But we chose to be orphans. We chose to reject his fathering. This before Christ was our state. This is who we are. But God, in his grace and in his mercy, did not leave us that way. Praise God. Praise God. And God made a way through the sending of his son, through the sending of his perfect son, who never chose to go away from his father, who never chose to not trust his father like we have. This perfect son came and lived the life that we could have never lived, died the death that we deserved, So that those who place their faith and trust in him, in Jesus Christ, are able to enter into the family of God. And when that happens, their status changes. It changes. They go from being the spiritually poor, the spiritually oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the outcast. Not only do they stop being that, 
but they are elevated, they are exalted, they are raised up into heavenly places. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians verse 8, sorry, chapter 8 and verse 9. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Amen. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't know what your bank balance is. I don't know what life looks like for you in terms of material possessions. If you are in Christ, you are counted among the wealthy for all of eternity. There's nothing that can rob that from you. Nothing at all. At the very center of the gospel of Jesus Christ, at the very center of the good news of Jesus Christ, is an understanding on our part that we were the poor. And the early church knew this. Their ministry, their service to the poor, and as I was reading in Acts chapter 2, that's where we kind of first see it in the earliest days in the Christian church, but it's a thread that goes throughout the rest of the book. Keep reading and you'll see other wonderful examples of the poor being served. Why? Why was this such a big thing for the early church? Why was this so core to who they were? Why is it that Paul says in in Galatians chapter 2 when he went and he met with Peter and he met with the other apostles, he's like, are they going to accept me? Is this going to work? Are we going to be disagreed? And they didn't disagree. The other apostles recognized that God's hand was on Paul as well. And then they were going to make one request of him, one request. What would it be? What is the thing that they're going to ask of Paul? Out of everything that they could ask, what is the one thing that they're going to ask of him? And this shows us just how much this was in the life of the early church, what they say to him. The only thing that we would ask is that you remember the poor. And Paul says the very thing, the very thing that I was eager to do. This was part of life in the early church because the early church understood it in light of the gospel. In light of the gospel. How could we not love and serve the poor in light of what God has done for us? We were the poor that God made rich. And friends, it grieves me when I see Churches and, and, and parachurch organizations, Christian faith-based organizations that seem more quick to roll out an image of a starving child or of a woman with a tear in her eye and say, how could you look at this and not have compassion? We should have compassion, but that's not the basis of our compassion. It's that spiritually speaking, that's us. And Christ has taken us in our famine, in our hunger, as widows, as orphans, and he has elevated us. And we are sons and daughters of God. And in light of that, when we see the orphan, when we see the widow, when we see the child or the man or woman of any age without food to eat, oh, the gospel, (laughs) the gospel, the grace of God on my life because spiritually speaking, that was me. How could I then not show compassion in light of what God has done for me? This must form the basis of our charity. The entire earth has been corrupted by sin, including our charity, including the reasons why we do the good things that we do. We're so broken, so fallen. 
Sometimes we write a check. Sometimes we even show up to help somewhere. Not always for all the right reasons. Sometimes it's more about how it makes us feel. We're just longing. I just I need to feel better about myself. It may help for an evening. It may help when you write the check or send the e-transfer. But in light of eternity, it's not going to help. The gospel will. The gospel changes the heart. The peripheral things, the exterior things, may lead to helpful change for moments, maybe even for you, but it won't change your heart. God is about the heart. Church, in light of the gospel, in light of the gospel, how could we not serve the poor? We must. We must. And friends, I would go so far as to say this, that if you're here this morning and you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, but there is nothing in your heart, nothing of compassion towards the poor, you have serious reason to question your salvation. Yes, I said that. The good news of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he has done for us, doesn't leave us as we were. I'm not saying that you all need to go out right now and sell your home and your car and all that. Maybe, maybe one or two of you do. That's not the application here. What I'm saying is that there is nothing, if there is nothing of compassion towards the poor, then you have failed to understand the gospel. Because apart from Christ, you are poor, and so am I. But God in his grace, through Christ, has made a way for us to be made rich. Friends, we need to understand that to serve the poor is to serve Jesus himself. I mean, this is glorious. To serve the poor is to serve Jesus himself. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. It says this in Matthew 25, verse 35. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and, 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 and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers... You did it to me. To the least of these, my brothers. That's interesting, isn't it? There's no comma before that. Jesus isn't referring to those that are asking him the question as his brothers, although they were. He's speaking of the poor. There is something so special in the heart of God for the poor. And when we serve the poor, we are serving Christ himself. What a privilege. What a privilege. Do a survey of Christians in our culture and ask them what worship is, and most of them will talk about music, and that's a big part of it. Praise God. But this is worship. <laughs> it's a lot easier to put a hand up in the air. It's a lot easier to put a couple dollars in the offering bucket or more, maybe even a lot more, or to serve and do all these things. Friends, we, we should do those things. Wonderful. But sacrificially serving the poor. 
What a wonderful expression of worship to Jesus Christ himself. Absolutely wonderful. So where do we go from here? Grace City Church, those of you that say, Grace City Church, yeah, I'm in, home church, here I am. Even come to the family meeting this afternoon, that's how committed I am. Where do we go from here? As a leadership team, we've been speaking about this. It can be easy to come up, uh, easy in some respects, not in others, but to preach a message like this and, and okay, we've, we've done our Serving the Poor Sunday, awesome. Box ticked, come back to it in a few months, and, and that'll be that. But as a team... And the leadership team of the church, myself, my wife Natalia, Will and Holly Roper, and Matt Luard, we have felt stirred in this area. Many of you know that as a church, we have, uh, and we're going to hear more about this in the church family meeting this afternoon, um, but as the church has been growing, we, we have anticipated, we have planned that there will be a gap between expenditure for the church and what we need to have coming in. And by God's grace, that gap has been met through fundraising that has happened in the U.K. by people that are over in the U.K. and, and actually in a couple other cities in Europe as well who have said, we're in, we, we want to invest to help Grace City Church get going. Now, there still is a gap there. We're going to hear about that this afternoon. God is faithful. We don't have anything to be worried about. We're not carrying a dollar of debt as a church, but we still want to see that gap close and to move into generosity. But we have felt very, very clearly and very strongly that part of God's plan for that is that we are to give more away. Like, weird, I know. It's one of the upside-down, backwards features of the kingdom of God. It just doesn't work the way our kingdoms work. And I felt, and we have felt, God depressing this on our hearts, that part of our journey in this is to give more away. And doing that has to include serving the poor. We want to serve in other areas as well. We want to be generous as God leads us in other areas as well. But it must include serving the poor. So as a leadership team, what we have decided for 2019, starting on January 1st, 2019, this next calendar year, in faith, we as a church are committing a minimum of 10% of our Canadian given income, our Canadian donations, will go towards serving the poor. 10%, as a minimum. And our hope is that as we go in this and we stir up faith in this and we build faith in the church and God builds faith in us, that this is only a starting point, that we are able to build on it. So if you're part of this church next year, every dollar that you give, a minimum of 10 cents on that dollar is going to serve the poor. And we are going to do this no matter what. No matter what we have to say no to, we are going to do this. I'm the only full-time employee of the church. If I have to go from five days down to four in order to do this, then we are going to do this. If we have to move from room 205 here in the Shaw Center into that broom closet, we are going to do it. If we have to get rid of the free coffee, yeah. (laughs) I actually wrote in my notes, pause for gasp, okay? (laughs) I mean it. We are going to do it. So church, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's test God in this. Let's see what he might do. This is an adventure. Grace City Church, are, like, I'm not saying this in a hype way. Rah, 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 let's jump around. Get up, get up, and get down. No, like church, <laughs> genuinely, church, church, are we up for this? Wonderful, wonderful. We do this as worship. We do this in response to the gospel. This isn't our way into the gospel. This isn't, oh, we got to do this thing. If we figure this thing out, then God will approve of us. No, 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 no. 
in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he has done for us, we choose to do this. Amen.